Hello, I'm Alec and this is Scandal 101. Let me tell you, my finals are done and it feels (laughs) so nice to be done and to have a couple of weeks to just relax and really do whatever I want. And also, today is my birthday, so that's exciting. I am going to definitely go to Starbucks and get the free birthday drink. Usually every year I get the iced peppermint mocha large, of course, because it's free, so why wouldn't you get the biggest one? In terms of a scandal update, uh, I read this interesting article about this town in New Jersey called, I think it was called Wall, and their football team apparently was hazing people in the high school, or I don't know, like hazing high school members joining the football team, and the district knew about it and didn't really do anything, so that's kind of interesting and horrible. Other than that, before I introduce this topic, I do want to let you know that there is going to be some graphic content in here, some uh, mentions of sexual assault. I left some of the gory gory details out because this is like a mix between a true crime episode and also a scandal episode, but some of those details are important to the story, so just know that going in. And with that, we are going to dive right in. This episode is Maybe a Serial Killer, Thomas Quick. Before I dive into the details of this story, there's a little bit of something interesting. So the person we're going to talk about in the title, his name is Thomas Quick. He was born with the name Stuart Bergwall, but he later calls himself Thomas Quick. And he's most famously known as Thomas Quick, but I'm going to call him by the name that he used at the time. Throughout some of the story, he'll be na- he'll be called Stuart. Some of the story, he'll be called Thomas. And I'll try and like signal when that's going to switch. It doesn't switch that often. But just so you know, Stuart and Thomas are the same person. His He was born with the name Stuart, but he went on to later call himself Thomas Quick. Um, I've got my information from a couple of sources, but the first one I'm mainly going to be using is from a GQ article by Chris Heath, and it was published in July of 2013, and as per usual, the show notes are posted on the website if you want to go look at those. Stuart, so his his birth name is Stuart Bergwell. He was born in 1950 in Fallon, Sweden, and it really sounds like Stuart had a awful, awful childhood. He talks about one defining moment in his childhood. Um, It's pretty horrible. He says that when he was four, he was laying on his back and his father was sucking his penis. What happens next, apparently, according to him, is that his mother walks in, sees what is happening, and of course is shocked, horrified, as you know, that I, well, as you know, hopefully you don't know, but I'm sure you can imagine that that would be awful. And what happens next is his mother, who is seven months pregnant at the time, apparently then miscarries at that exact moment. Stewart says that, quote, he lies there, so he's lying there, as he watches his brother-to-be, who he is told would have been called Simon, falls to the floor dead. 
He remembered how the umbilical cord was wrapped around the baby's neck and how, in cutting it, his father also severs the dead baby's head, end quote. There is a little speculation about that story as to if that really happened. Um, from one of the articles I read, there was no evidence that his mom had a miscarriage. This, again, this is Stewart telling the story. And apparently the next day, um, Stewart's father and Stewart go on a bike ride and his dad brings along something wrapped in newspaper. And Stewart realizes that in the newspaper is the body of his dead brother. And they apparently rode far away from their house on their bikes where the father disposed of the body. Stewart says that his mother blamed Stewart for the death and his mother apparently tried to drown him in a hole in the ice of a frozen lake. And his father saved him, so he didn't drown, but she also apparently tried to push him in front of a bus. <laughs> so, you know, assuming all of these things are true, these events are probably some of the most traumatic things that can happen to a child. And add on top of it, there are also stories that Stewart tells about his father, where it seems like his father would molest him, and then afterwards, his father would be really, really nice to him. So you've got abuse, attempted killing of Stewart when he's a child, him apparently seeing his mother miscarry, seeing the dead baby, and then his mother trying to push him in front of a bus, and then molestation, all by the age of like six. So already, this, the start of this story and the childhood of Stewart, horrible. One of the things that many true crime podcasts say, and I agree with, is that you can feel bad for the child of, like, there's so many examples of serial killers where they have traumatic childhoods. You can feel bad for them as children, but once they're an adult and doing, you know, all the horrible things that they do, that's when you don't feel bad but you can have sympathy for the child version of that person. And I, yeah, like it's hard not to have sympathy for the child version of this person, but that's going to go away pretty shortly. So not only did he have this traumatic childhood, you know, assuming all of these things are true, but Stewart grew up and he realized at around the age of 14 that he was gay. So he would have realized this in mid-1960s. And again, he was in Sweden, but I'm sure pretty much everywhere around the world, being gay in the 1960s, 1970s, not a great experience. He's got all this trauma from a child, and then all he's realizing that he's gay in a world, in a, probably a society that most likely would not accept him if he was out with his true self. So he's growing up and in his late teens, he started working at an old folks home where he would meet his first love. His first love's name was Tom and Tom was the manager of the old folks home that he worked at and it seemed like they had a good relationship. Stewart said about the relationship, quote, I was in love and overjoyed by the realization that two men could be together, end quote. They were together for about a year when one day Stewart came into work and was told that Tom, who was his boyfriend, and Tom was someone who had always struggled with his sexuality, Stewart was told that Tom had hung himself. Just another thing added on. The first person that you love, the first person that you can be open and comfortable with yourself, your sexuality with, you know, dies by suicide. And of course, Stewart was upset by this, and this is where Stewart this is where we start to feel not bad for Stuart. 
Over the next few months, Stewart sexually assaulted four underage youths, and he would also walk around town sniffing trichloroethylene, which is, I, I had to look that up, it's something that is used to make refrigerators and also degre- degrease medical, oh my goodness, degrease metal equipment. So he's sniffing something that gets grease off of metal equipment and also is used to make refrigerators, so that's cool. There was one time where he got high off of that and sexually assaulted an 11-year-old boy. And there was also another time where he was in a hospital and from what I could gather it seemed like he worked at the hospital and he sexually assaulted a nine-year-old who was in the hospital. He had put his hand over the boy's mouth to stop him from screaming and the boy eventually started bleeding so Stuart ran. Stuart thought that he had killed the boy but luckily he was wrong. The boy was alive and Stuart was you know sentenced and he was sent to a mental hospital where he was in and out of residential treatment for a few years. To people in the United States, that's weird to hear that someone could do that and then be sent to a mental hospital, but Swedish criminal justice system, uh, the way they handle crimes is very different than in the United States, but he was not, from what I could find, he was not sent to jail for this. For um, the assault of the nine-year-old in the hospital, he was sent to a mental hospital. A few years later, it's 1974, and Stewart is 23 years old, and he went to a nightclub which was known at the time to be a place, uh, like a safe place for gay people to hang out. He met a student at the time who was named Lenart. He met him, and the two of them went back to Lenart's room. Lenart went to the bathroom, and our good friend Stewart uh, did what he loves to do and sniffed some trichloroethylene. He said that Uh, Stewart said he knew that by sniffing it, he would have hallucinations, but quote, the hallucinations I wanted were more about being on a paradise island with all of the flowers, end quote. Now, I've never sniffed trichloroethylene, but I can imagine that you don't have a lot of choice in the hallucinations that you get from those kinds of drugs, I would think. I feel like your brain probably just kind of fills in whatever it wants. I'm sure everyone would want some good hallucinations, but I don't know how much control you actually have over that. Yeah, so that's what he was wanting. When Lennart came out of the bathroom, Stuart said what he saw coming at him was not Lennart, not a man, but instead a monster coming to attack him. Because of this, Stuart grabbed a butter knife and stabbed him over and over again. Stewart said that after this experience, it was so awful that he never touched trichloroethylene again. Probably a good decision. Thank you so much, Stewart. Luckily, and somehow miraculously, Lennart survived. Lennart said about the attack, he remembered watching Stewart wash the knife off for fingerprints. And that kind of makes me wonder how high out of your mind you could have been if you have the mental capacity you have to wash a knife off for fingerprints after you stab someone, but that's just my opinion. Leonard had been stabbed 12 times and his left lung was punctured, but again, luckily he survived. In 1990, Stewart slipped back into using drugs, and to fund the addiction, he decided to rob rob a bank with someone else. So what they did is they went to the bank manager's house at around 5.45 in the morning and broke in with a gun and a knife. His partner took the bank manager to the bank to get the money, and Stewart stayed at home with the bank manager's wife and kid. 
the the two were caught and later in court the wife said that quote Stewart shouted that he was infected with AIDS and only had a short time to live and that it didn't matter if we lived or died end quote Luckily, it didn't take super long for them to get caught. They were caught later that day. But not going to jail, Stewart went back to the same mental hospital that he went to, which was something that Stewart had pushed for because he did not want to go to prison. Let's talk about this mental hospital where Stewart went. It was called, I believe how you say it is Seder. So Seder Mental Hospital in Sweden, and it was by a big lake. The way healthcare works, the criminal justice system works, it's way different than it is over here in the United States. One big difference that I noticed reading about was there were a lot of freedoms that the patients of the mental hospital had there that I personally would think would be surprising if it was in the United States. One of those freedoms was there would be supervised swimmings in the lake near the hospital. So the, you know, the patients could go swimming. They would be supervised by a nurse or one of the workers at the hospital. And there was one time where Stewart was swimming and he looked at the nurse and said, quote, I wonder what you'd think of me if you'd found out that I'd done something really serious, end quote. And then remember at this point, he's really, I mean, not that what he did isn't bad, but he's in there for the robbery, he stabbed someone, but you know, you look at a nurse <laughs> and say that, and I'm sure that nurse was like, oh no. From a Guardian article by El Elizabeth Day in 2012, Stewart uh, further said after that, quote, maybe I murdered someone, end quote. And Stewart said that it created interest and there was no going back. In future therapy sessions, Stewart said that he was responsible for an unsolved killing back in 1964, as well as a killing in 1980 of an 11-year-old boy named Johan Asplund. He seemed to know details that only the killer, only someone who was there could know. For that first crime, the 1964 crime, he confessed to it, but there was a statute of limita limitations for 25 years, so there could be no punishment. The authorities, though, even though there could be no punishment for that first case, they took all of what he said into account with the details of the crime, and they were like, yep, that makes sense. He knows a lot of the details. They considered the case closed. At this point in the story, I'm pretty sure this is where he changes his name to Thomas Quick, so I'm going to be just calling him Thomas, but again, it's the same person as Stewart. From the GQ article, his second and third convictions were for killing uh, of a husband and wife while they were camping. Thomas said that he stabbed and killed them through the tent before going through and finishing the killings. His fourth murder was a student from Israel named Yenin Levy. Thomas said that he had kidnapped Yenin and when Yenin tried to escape, Thomas killed him. Thomas's next confession was in 1996, and he confessed to the murder of a nine-year-old girl in Norway that took place in the 1980s. So with the murder of the nine-year-old, uh, he recounted gruesome details, and he also said that he was disappointed she wasn't a boy, which is horrible, but it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because he's... You know, he says that he's gay. If he's wanting to do sexual things with them, presumably he would want them to be males, as, you know, awful as it is to think about, but it just kind of makes sense. 
So he said he was disappointed that she wasn't a boy. I'm not going to put a ton of the gruesome details in here, but he, after killing her, he said that he dismembered her and threw parts of her into a lake. From the Guardian article, one thing that was interesting is that when he confessed to this, he got a lot of the details wrong. For example, he said that she had blonde hair and lived in a rural area, when in fact she had dark brown hair and lived in a very urban area. He was driven to Norway after confessing, and he showed the authorities the lake where he said that he had thrown the body parts in, and over a period of seven weeks, the authorities drained that lake, and they found what they thought to be was a bone fragment, but it turned out just to be a chunk of charred wood. Regardless of this, he was convicted of this killing. His sixth and seventh murders that he confessed to were a 17-year-old female sex worker named Gree Storvik and a 17-year-old female named Treen Jensen. And then the last murder he was convicted for was the one of the 11-year-old boy named Johan Asplund. Even though he had, that was one of the first ones he admitted to, it took a while to actually convict him on it. There was also a conviction where he said that he had sexually assaulted a woman, which kind of made authorities go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. So with the killing that he admitted to in 1964, and again, that was the one where he first admitted to, but the statute of limitations had gone up, so he could not be punished for it. But he admitted to it anyways, and the authorities thought, yep, this makes sense, it's closed. People said that the day that that killing was supposed to have happened, Thomas was over 14, or gee, he was over 250 miles away at a communion, and he was 14 years old at the time. To prove that, there was a photograph of him that very day over 250 miles away from where this killing would have happened. With the killing uh, that he confessed to of a 23-year-old woman, he said that he had raped her, sexually assaulted her, and there was semen found on the body. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense because, you know, we're taking his word for it. He's gay, so presumably he has no sexual motives toward females. And further, the semen found on the body was not a match for Thomas. So things were not adding up. How... How could the DNA not match? If he is gay, what sexual motivations would he have for raping, sexually assaulting a woman? Regardless of this, though, he was convicted for that 23-year-old woman, uh, woman killing. People, authorities, they were like, okay, sure, it's weird, but he's he knows all of these details about the crime that no one but the killer could know, so it has to be him. That was proof enough for them to lock him down for these crimes. So all of these convictions, they take place from the mid-90s, and the last conviction he is found guilty of is in 2001. He's convicted of eight murders, but he has confessed to over 30 murders over his time of confession in this mental hospital. And again, this whole time, he's in the mental hospital. He's not, like, he's not in jail, he's not in prison, he's in this mental hospital when he's confessing. In 2008, a Swedish filmmaker named Hans Rostam, he went to visit Thomas in the mental hospital. And before going, Hans had read police interrogations with Thomas. He had watched crime scene reconstructions where the police 
uh, and Thomas were reconstructing the crimes, and Hans had spoke to people who were in the investigation, so he had done a lot of the groundwork before going to visit Thomas. And one of the reasons it's important to note that Hans did this groundwork is because something didn't seem right to Hans. Thomas said that when Hans came to visit him, Hans said to Thomas, quote, I see in the reenactment videos that you're as high as a kite, end quote. Thomas said, quote, nobody had ever mentioned the drugs before, ever. That very moment, I knew I could tell the truth, and I threw all caution to the wind. Thomas said, quote, if it was true that I haven't committed any of these murders, if it was true, then what can I do, end quote. He then followed up with, quote, I haven't committed any of the murders I've been convicted of, and none of the murders I've confessed to either. That's the way it is, end quote. Of course, <laughs> to Hans, this is shocking to hear. Thomas had been convicted of eight murders and had confessed to at least 30. But with Hans's research, he felt like it was possible. The weaknesses in the case that I talked about earlier, they were seen not only by Hans, but many people, including the family of Johann Asplund, who was the 11-year-old boy apparently murdered by Thomas. Another case Thomas had admitted to but was never convicted of, Thomas had admitted to killing two Somali refugees, and it seemed believable because they had just disappeared without a trace. Well, it just, it turns out that they were alive and they had just moved to another country and they were just living there. So they weren't murdered, they just moved. One of Johan Asplund's parents said about Johan's murder, quote, it was obvious he was not the guy, end quote. Thomas, he talked about the drugs, let's talk about them. As we know, Thomas had a drug addiction earlier when he was sniffing those chemicals, here were the drugs that Thomas said he was given by the hospital staff on a daily basis. Quote, six, five milligrams of Valium, four, one milligram of Xanax, one, 10 milligram of Valium, 1.5 milligrams of Halcyon, two Rohypnols, six Triocomps, and six Panacods, end quote. I can't, I'm not going to claim that I know what all of those drugs do, but I can tell you that that is a lot of drugs for one person to take on a daily basis. Thomas said that he learned at, that after a good murder confession, he would be able to get all of the drugs he wanted. He said that it wasn't only an incentive, but with him taking the drugs, it made him not care about what the consequences were of what he was saying. And again, he was in the, in the mental hospital doing this. He was never in prison. So we have Hans, who's like, you don't look very believable in these videos. You have Thomas saying, here are all these drugs that these people gave me. So how, how are we going to make people believe the story? Because after all, there were taped recreations of the time scene, or of the crime scenes, that had made sense, and he had knowledge of the crimes that only the killer would know. His confessions had information that the killer would know. How was this going to be explained? Well, how about this for an explanation? Thomas went to the library and did research. Yep, <laughs> that's right. Part of his privileges at the mental hospital were unsupervised day trips out into the city, so Thomas went to the National Library in Stockholm and took notes over unsolved murders. What about the taped recreations? How could he 
on film recreate a crime that he hadn't committed? Well, one of the biggest recreations that took place was the campsite, which is where the husband and wife were murdered. One of the things about the recreation was the police completely recreated the crime scene without Thomas being there. So what happened is the police set up the tent where it was supposed to be. They set up this campsite exactly how it was set up and then Thomas got there. So when they asked him how, you know, how did you commit this murder? Thomas, he started acting it out, started acting, and it wasn't right. It wasn't accurate. So everyone took a break. One person who was there said that most of the people, they went down to the lake because they were camping by a lake and they just, you know, were taking a coffee break or whatever, but not Thomas. Thomas was huddled up at the top of the hill with the police investigator. Magically, when they came back from the break, Thomas knew exactly how that crime was committed and could recreate it perfectly. And that is what was on film. Not before when he couldn't do it accurately. He eventually, he lost his library privileges, so he just requested newspapers at the mental hospital and he did his own research. He also contacted journalists to send him articles or books and the content of those things would help him, like would inform him of what to confess to in later confessions. He also said that the police interrogation, like the language that they were using, their body language, helped him knew how to answer a question. He said, like if he said something wrong, for example, the blonde hair versus the dark brown hair, it was chalked up to him either trying to mislead investigators or the fact that he fully couldn't acknowledge what he had done. Investigators would tell him, quote, that's very brave of you, end quote, and Thomas knew that meant he got something right. And when he was told, quote, I understand this must be painful for you to face up to, end quote, Thomas knew that he got something wrong, so he would switch up the details until he got it right. <laughs> so the police were basically just informing him indirectly of how to confess to this crime so then he could be convicted for it. About three months after Hans had visited Thomas in the hospital, there were two documentaries that were made and aired, and once they were aired, there was a huge, huge public outrage. And then at this point, I believe he's going by Stewart again. The documentaries, quote, appeared to show an unbelievable cavalcade of idiocies and mistakes as a man morphed from mental patient Stuart Bergwall to mythical eight-time killer Thomas Quick, and they were persuasive in shifting public opinion in Bergwall's favor, end quote. So these documentaries, they did the job. They got public opinion on Stuart's side. Coming from Stuart Bergwall's Wikipedia page, on July 20th, 2013, he was acquitted of the last murder charge. And again, he was originally convicted of eight murder charges, but as of July 20th, 2013, he had no convictions. He was released from the mental hospital and seemingly lives a pretty quiet life. The latest thing I could find about him was he was in a 2015 documentary titled The Confessions of Thomas Quick. This case it raised a lot of controversy about how murder convictions could be done based on such little evidence, and this had been called, quote, the largest miscarriage of justice in Swedish history, end quote. Because presumably, what had happened is you have this drug addict, um, in a couple articles I saw, mentally ill, someone who had, you know, mental health issues. You have this drug-addicted, potentially mentally ill person who was convicted of murder eight times be with almost no evidence. 
So even though there was this miscarriage of justice, presumably, not everyone was happy with Stuart getting out. Lenart, if we remember, is the man that Stuart stabbed, and that that little that legitimately happened. He uh, Stuart stabbed Lenart with a butter knife twelve times. Lenart was not happy about him being released. When Stuart was on TV, Stuart basically alluded to the fact that it was Thomas who you know did all the confessions and said all those violent things and did all those violent things. Stuart said, "Quote: Thomas Quick is dead." I am Stuart Bergwall, end quote. Lenart said, quote, It makes me sick to see him on the TV when he sits there and blames the hospital for drugging him. It's just a big act. When he stabbed me, he was Stuart Bergwall, end quote. And that <laughs> concludes maybe a serial killer, Thomas Quick. Okay, let me tell you that... <laughs> This one was probably one of my favorite ones to research. It's it's just so it it's mind-boggling because this man was convicted 8 times of murder on basically no evidence, but yet at the same time he definitely stabbed someone 12 times. He definitely sexually assaulted someone when he was littler, like 19, and he definitely took people hostage and was threatening to kill them. So is Thomas Quick a great person? Personally, I'm going to say no. Um, he's definitely done some not great things in his life. But also, he is someone who struggled with drug addiction, maybe mental illness. You know, how much lead way, how much excuse can you give to someone who struggles with those things? You know, it varies. There's never an excuse to stab someone. But clearly, he was someone who needed help. And so this mental hospital and the police gave him this medication to essentially become a notorious serial killer, but then he really didn't do it. <laughs> it's, it's just mind-boggling that that was allowed to happen. And the other shocking thing is, from what I could find, Stuart, Thomas Quick, whatever you want to call him, he didn't commit those murders, so that means... All of those people who were murdered, their murderers are presumably still out there or they're dead. They, they were never brought to justice because there was this focus on him, Thomas Quick. It's, it's just mind-boggling. Okay, so that concludes that part of the episode. I am going to read a personal scandal that was sent in. This person didn't want me to use their name, which is completely fine, and they inserted fake names into the email. And here we go. Just a couple of months ago, I came to find out my family's criminal history could have run even deeper, which I, I first want to know what the first part is. <laughs> my grandmother Veronica did not approve of her daughter Michelle's first husband, the later father of her two children. While everyone seemingly was right about him and how he would fail to stick around as he later lived up to by leaving, my grandmother almost took fate into her own hands to protect her daughter from disappointment. My grandmother nearly put a hit on the father of her grandkids, but luckily, before she followed through, things dissipated anyways. Crazy to think about the lengths people will go to to protect their family. Not that I approve of it, but it's interesting to think about. <laughs> Whoa, don't mess with grandma, because apparently grandma will put out a hit on you, or almost put a hit out on you. 
Well, to that person who sent it in, thank you very much. Um, I saw your name in the email, but obviously you didn't want it to be read. So thank you for sending that in. Thank you for listening. It is so nice to be done with finals. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to keep up with the latest, stay in touch on social media, on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast, you'll find us on there. The website where you can find the show notes with the sources is Scandal101Podcast.Podbean.com. And then if you have your personal scandal that you want read on the podcast, please send it to Scandal101Podcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. This was a super fun episode to research, and I hope you enjoyed it. This has been episode 31 of Scandal 101.